Our sermon text this morning is Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. Look, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. We are pausing just for one week in our verse-by-verse sermon series through the book of Revelation for a topical sermon from this verse in Matthew. And this entire sermon is built on a particular premise that I will begin by stating and defending. That premise is this, that the Christian church in the United States of America finds itself under the kind of governmental oppression and cultural hostility to be counted rightly as a member of the persecuted church. I'll read that again because it's foundational for everything that comes next. The Christian church in the United States of America finds itself under the kind of governmental oppression and cultural hostility to be rightly counted as a member of the persecuted church. Now, that might seem like an overstatement. By what standard would we call ourselves members of the persecuted church? Well, it's certainly not by the standard of comparing ourselves to the church in other countries. We are far, far, far better off than our brothers and sisters in China, India, North Korea, Afghanistan. We're even far better off than our brothers and sisters in England and France and Canada. And so the standard cannot be by comparison to the church in other places. So you might ask, well, how oppressive does the government have to be? How hostile does our culture have to be before we can count ourselves as persecuted? And I would say we've reached that point because we do not, or rather no longer, live in a nation that promotes Christian worldviews and lifestyles for its citizens, which please God by the standard of His Holy Word. Again, we do not live in a nation that promotes Christian lifestyles and worldviews which please God by the standard of His Holy Word. And you might object to that and say, well, does our nation really have to promote a Christian worldview and a lifestyle in order for Christians to be free? Why can it not merely allow for it? And the reason for that is because nations allow for many things, but they are always promoting something. Every nation is promoting something. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, that anyone who is not for him is against him. And so a nation that does not promote Jesus and his teachings is against Jesus and his teachings and therefore his church. We must recognize that we are a part of the persecuted church so that we can rightly live in these circumstances. We don't have stage four cancer, so to say, but we ought to recognize where we are at so that we can respond accordingly. Uh, If you have two fish and they're flopping around on the shore of a beach and one fish concludes that swimming is just really, really hard and the other fish concludes that it's on a beach and needs to get back to the water, though that later fish, it has a much better chance of surviving than the former because it rightly understands the circumstances it finds itself in. And so as we recognize these circumstances, how are we to think? How are we to live? 
What adjustments do we need to make? What emphases should we have? And that is what the remainder of this sermon entails. To start off, though, two things that go together, which are ways that we ought not to respond. The first is that we should not be surprised. We should not be surprised. 1 John chapter 3, the Apostle John says that the world hated Jesus and therefore it is going to hate you. Christians should never be surprised by suffering or persecution. Now, we are a very optimistic church. We have a very optimistic eschatology because God the Father has elected the church Jesus has died for the church, and the Spirit empowers the church so that we will indeed accomplish in time and space and history the mission that we were sent out for, which is to baptize and disciple the nations. That is something we can and will accomplish by the grace of God in time and space and history. But that should not in any way, shape, or form negate our theology of suffering, I think too many Christians, even optimistic ones, think, well, Jesus died for my sins, so I don't have to die for my sins. Therefore, Jesus suffered so that I don't have to suffer. And nothing could be further from the truth. Paul makes it his goal to know the death of Jesus and be conformed to his sufferings. We understand that crowns are achieved through crosses, that victories are accomplished through our suffering. No one, no Christian has ever believed that everything is always getting better all of the time in every aspect. That post-millennial Christian has never existed. We can remain and should remain optimistic about where the world is going because that is what the Bible teaches us in the grand gradual scheme of things, but it should not make us to be able to be blindsided by suffering. So we should not be surprised. And secondly, as Pastor John already alluded to and said explicitly, we ought not to be frustrated by the sinfulness of the world around us. We ought to be righteously angry, upset, uh, but we ought not to be frustrated in the sense that we look at our world and there's so many double standards, there's so much double speak in our culture, we don't know up from down, boy from girl, right from wrong, and some Christians just get angry and frustrated. Well, of course, you should expect if a nation shakes its fist at God, if it rejects his son, Jesus, who is the logos of God, the reason and rationality, the logic of God, that that culture becomes foolish, stupid, insane, unreasonable, and schizophrenic. That is what we ought to expect. And so we should not be surprised and we should not be frustrated but rather, we should dig our feet in and figure out how we ought to live. And there are several categories I will touch on this morning, places I think in our lifestyles, our emphases in our thinking that need adjustment, or maybe don't need adjustment, but you just need encouraged in. The first one concerns our finances. I'm going to begin by making a sharp statement Sharp so that it sticks in your mind and it's overdramatic, but then I am going to qualify it carefully. And that is that as Christians who are persecuted, who are on that track, debt for us is sin. Financial debt is sin. And the reason for this is because the devil will go after not our lives right away, but our wallets. And we are going to have to say no to Caesar, whether Caesar is the government 
or our employer or sometimes our neighbor. And what is often at risk is what is in our wallets, our net worth, our income, our 401k. And there's going to be a very clear answer. When Caesar demands what belongs to God, the answer is no. It's no. And that's difficult, but it's clear. But when you have to say no, and you've got a lot of credit card debt, and you've got to make sure you keep up with those payments, and a car payment, and a mortgage, and a student loan, and more credit card payments, what is going to happen is this internal dialogue where you deceive yourself into thinking that you are the exception to the rule. And you deceive yourself into compromising faithfulness to Jesus because you do not belong to him only. Because Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6 that you cannot serve two masters, you cannot serve both God and money. And financial debt is the chain, it is the shackle of money. So that you are no longer able to hear clearly the commands of Jesus because your other master, your finances, your debt is tugging on that chain, is shouting over the commands of Jesus and what should be an easy but difficult answer all of a sudden becomes a difficult, difficult answer. And it's far easier to compromise. Now, let me qualify that. It's important because if you're here and you're a teenager and you want to grow up and be a doctor, you're probably not going to be able to pay for it. You're probably going to need to take some student loans. Most of us in here have mortgages, and that's, that's not sinful. Right? Um, some of you might be so financially savvy that you actually know how to leverage debt in order to prosper, and you shouldn't stop doing that. That's a good thing. But Christians who are under the circumstances that we find ourselves in need to throw off the chains of all other masters. And typically, that master for us is our money. It is our debts. Because imagine with me for a moment. Deuteronomy chapter, in Deuteronomy chapter 15, God makes a promise to Israel that if they obey his commandments, that they will lend to many nations and borrow from none. They'll lend to many and borrow from none. So imagine with me for a moment that if someone in our community needs to borrow money, they need a loan, they don't go to the federal government for it, they don't go to their local bank for it, they come to the church. Because the church has embraced all of the Proverbs and the parables in the Bible about money and how to steward it, and we are the ones who lend and do not borrow. That means uh, that if the mosque down the road wants to go plant another mosque and they need the funds for that, they have to come to the church for that. That means that if our strip club on Ravine Road needs a renovation, and it is indeed ours because it only exists because the church allows it to exist, if it needs a renovation, that owner has to come to us to get the money for that. That means if Queer Kalamazoo wants to have a really great parade, they have to come to the church to finance it. Right? I don't know about you, but I want to live in a world where all of the imams and all the club owners and where the board of Queer Kalamazoo have to come to Pastor John if they want an allowance. That, that is the world that we want to live in, and it is not unrealistic because also concerning our finances, something Christians need to consider in this moment especially is to be far more concerned with investing in the number of children in our homes than in luxury items 
and in adding additional zeros to our 401ks. A recent comedian in New York City speaking to residents of New York City, he had a, a line where he's, he said, how are you all so surprised that Roe v. Wade was overturned? How are you all so surprised? Pro-lifers are out there, they're getting married, they're having kids, and they're teaching those kids to be pro-life. Pro-choicers, well, you know what you're doing. Right? It's, we could, this could be a very weird time in our nation that is simply a little blip because Christians sacrifice getting bigger and better versions of what they already have, and they sacrifice a really, really comfortable retirement so that they can have a few more kids and so that our kids and grandkids and great-grandkids can turn things around. That's not an option that's totally out of the picture if we are thinking a few generations forward. Talking about money leads to employment. Employment. Uh, many of you are here at CityGate Church uh, because of the hostility and persecution you faced in your employment. Because in 2020 or 2021, Caesar demanded something of you that only belonged to God, and you gave him or her a resounding no. And because of that, you had to find a new job. You had to start your own business. You have to now make a lot of sacrifices on a lot less income and grind it out a lot more than you otherwise would have. And that is extremely honorable, and that is good because you are, I think, setting a pattern for what's going to continue to happen to Christians. Uh, because you should recognize, Christian, that you know, if your employers, uh, if their Twitter right now is covered in the rainbow and your pronouns are in the, the signature of your email, that um, it, it's going to be continually harder for faithful Christians to get employed and stay employed by godless companies and corporations. So for those of you who work at Christian businesses and who are trying to start Christian businesses, good work, keep going. But for those of you who find yourself in a position where you are going to spend a while and maybe even retire from a company that hates God, which you don't hate God, so that's not sinful, you're not a second-class Christian because you don't belong to a Christian business or you don't start a Christian business. But if you're going to be there for a while, uh, you need to get ahead of it. And the, the text I would point you to to start thinking about would be from Luke chapter 16. Uh, the first several, the first eight verses, which is a parable that Jesus gives to his disciples. In Luke chapter 16, we read, Now he said this to the disciples, there was a rich man who received an accusation that his manager was squandering his possessions. So he called the manager in and asked, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you can no longer be my manager. Then the manager said to himself, What will I do since my master is taking management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I'm removed from my management, people will welcome me into their homes. So he summoned each one of his master's debtors. How much do you owe my master? He asked the first one. A hundred measures of olive oil, he said. Take your invoice, he told him. Sit down quickly and write 50. Next he said to another, how much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat, he said. Take your invoice, he told him, and write 80. The master praised the unrighteous manager because he acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd than the children of light in dealing with with their own people. 
The rich man in this parable praises the manager for his shrewdness, for his wisdom. He praises him because the manager is shrewd in preparing for the judgment that clearly awaits him. And if you are working for a company in a corporation that hates God, you need to right now be preparing for the judgment that certainly awaits you as it becomes more and more difficult to remain a faithful Christian where you work. Uh, This is the time where we're going to learn a lot more about our brothers and sisters, or rather from them, who are in China than we are from our grandparents who were faithful Christians in the 50s. This is, I do not think, now it's not sinful to do this, but I don't think it's the time to have your job with a Christian flag pinned to your cubicle and a Bible open on your desk to Genesis 19 and make sure that every single one of your coworkers knows from the first conversation you have with them that you are a Christian. Rather, it's time to create and think on different strategies, different faithful strategies, because oftentimes weak Christians they use the language of strategy and evangelism to really just never evangelize, uh, to, to keep their Christianity a secret from all of their coworkers. And that, that's not what I want to promote at all. But here's something to think about uh, as you hopefully meditate more and prepare from Luke chapter 16. When you, when you go into your employment, you want to find people who you know would hate what you believe and absolutely oppose it. And you want to keep your Christianity cards close to your chest, and you want to be extremely kind. You want to go out of your way to serve them, to make their jobs easier, to get to know them, allow them to talk about themselves a lot, maybe do something with them outside of work. And it can't be years, but it probably should be weeks, maybe a few months, that you show your hand, that you have a robust Christian worldview. It's not something you can put off forever. And, and that person still might hate you. But what hopefully will happen is that you're going to shatter their framework. Because they already have this framework over here of what bigoted, racist, everything phobic Christians like you are like. But then you, the flesh and blood real Christian who is faithful to Jesus, comes in and totally destroys that framework because they like you. And they trust you. And you're not a crazy person. And that puts them into a crisis. You are, you're making friends with those who in some way, shape, or form are going to be able to help you. And maybe they're not. Maybe they're not. Maybe, you know, two, five years from now, you get called in, and you've been strategic and faithful, and you're still getting fired. Well, here's a, I don't want to compare it too much to being fired from your job from martyrdom, but there's a parallel here in that there were many, many Roman soldiers who grew to love Christians and then had to watch them be eaten alive by lions in an arena, and that was what God used to begin to draw them to himself. There were many Roman Catholic priests who became fantastic Protestant preachers because they grew to love the imprisoned Protestants around them and then watch them burn at the stake while they sang psalms. Hopefully, Hopefully, you're able to interact with your coworkers in such a way that you're able to keep your job, and even if you're not able to, that on your way out, you drag as many of them up into heaven as possible to begin to commune and meet 
with our Lord Jesus. That is your goal at your godless employer. Finally, second to last, talk about the family. Something we should be thinking about and emphasizing as we think of the family. And this is what I think most Christians, many good Christian families are aspiring towards. I'm going to call it the, the family time model. Most Christian families, by necessity, are separated somewhat from nine to five. You come together in the evening, you finish up your individual things you have to do, you more nights out of the week than not sit down together and eat and talk, and then after dinner you disperse and you do your own things. Right, mom does the dishes and then scrolls on social media. Dad mows the lawn and then watches TV. Uh, daughter takes the dog on a walk. Son goes and shoots hoop. It's in the front yard, right? That's what we all go and do. But we have this time scheduled on Saturday or a day of the week called family time. And that's where we all get together and we do something as a family. We watch a show. We play a game. We go on a walk. That's, that's what most Christian families, I think, are aspiring towards. And it is, it needs an adjustment. It's backwards. Because you, families, should be spending so much time doing everything together that you're not scheduling family time. You're doing so much together that, if anything, you are scheduling time to be by yourselves. You're scheduling not family time, you are scheduling individual time. And because this is the vision that the Bible presupposes for the family. For instance, consider Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 4. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These are the words that I am giving you today to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. I'll read verse 7 again. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in the house, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. That commandment presupposes that you as a family are doing life together. Or listen to Solomon in the Proverbs. Uh, Solomon is instructing his son... And he says over and over again, listen, sons, to a father's discipline. Pay attention so that you may gain understanding. Listen, my son, accept my words and you will live many years. I am teaching you the way of wisdom. I am guiding you on straight paths. My son, pay attention to my words. Listen closely to my sayings. Do not lose sight of them. My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Listen closely to my understanding so that you may t maintain discretion. The way that Solomon speaks to his sons implies that he is spending more than 20 minutes with them between dinner and the couch. He is wrapped up in their lives, what they are doing, what they are thinking about, where they are going. Or consider Paul in speaking about how husbands are to relate to their wives in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 and 26. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of the water of the word. Many evangelical Christians, their goal is to just sit with their wife for 10 minutes a day and read their Bible. And that is a good goal. That's a good goal to start. But 
Paul describes making your wife holy, cleansing her and washing her with the water of the word. If all you do is open your Bible with your wife for 10 minutes a day and you say goodnight as you drift off to sleep, that is not a washing of the word. That's a little sprinkling of the word. That is not going to be enough to make her holy. Husbands are to spend time with their wives. This is an an ongoing uh, relationship. And so families need to spend time together because why, why don't we do that? Why don't we just naturally gravitate towards doing things with one another? Well, it's often because I have my own particular preferences on how I want to entertain myself, and I live in a kind of individualistic society that allows me to be able to do that. Uh, But I do have often what are called chores, which is a dirty word that Christians should not use, chores. And chores are the things that we assign to people in our house so they can hurry up and do them so that they can go back to entertaining themselves. Right, because when you, 1 John chapter 5 says that God's commands are not burdensome. And when, the, when you just do chores so that everybody can hurry up and get them done and you can go back to entertaining yourself, you're looking at the commandments of God as burdensome. For instance, dishes. You don't deserve dishes. God gifted you dishes. And he gifted you the food to put on those dishes. He gifted you the time and the company to eat with those dishes. And perform before the world was made, because God is completely sovereign, he ordained a particular time for you to wash those dishes. That is how you ought to think about your chores. They're not chores. Uh, they are good things that God has given you to do as a family. And so we ought to spend, husbands, this is your goal. You want to have as many family members in one room doing the same thing together for as long as possible all the time. You want to be constantly connected with your family. It's far better for a family to finish dinner and assign one, uh, it's far better than this, to, to finish dinner, assign one person to do the dishes so everyone else can go off and do their own thing. Rather, for the whole family, to get together and two people do the dishes and one person wipes the table and the other person doesn't actually have a chore, but they still want to be there because they enjoy the fellowship and the conversation and the love of their family togetherness more than they enjoy going and scrolling through social media or playing a video game or watching TV or even going on a walk. They would rather delay that and do it with their family. Why is this so important? in our time right now. It is because our culture is meandering, our prodigal culture is meandering in the mud, feeding on the corn husks of loneliness and isolation and just God-awfulness. That is what we are meandering in. And what is going to be a potent biblical, attractive alternative is the gospel clearly articulated and then practiced, incarnated in a family, in a family that is imperfect, that maybe the husband and wife had to go to marriage counseling every now and then, an imperfect family that love one another, they love to serve one another, they love to be around one another, even if they're not really doing anything. That is going to be the attractive alternative to the husks 
of loneliness, idolatry, and isolation. That is what we have to show our culture. Finally, as we close, there has been a lot of room in this sermon to despair. Maybe when we were talking about finances, you thought to yourself, well, I'm in a lot of debt, and that's a long way off for me, and that's kind of disappointing. Or we talked about the family, and you are here, and well, you know, I'd love to apply that, but my kids are grown up and gone. I'm not the center of influence anymore. Or I am single. I don't have a family yet. It's not relevant to me. It actually is. Or I'm married to an unbelieving spouse. Or my spouse says they're a believer, but they're really not, and I can tell by how they're living. Uh, That could be discouraging. Or when you talk about employment, I would love to go off and start a Christian business, which is a lot easier to do when you're not in debt. I would love to do that, uh, but I'm probably just going to retire at where I'm employed right now and try and figure out how to do that. And that doesn't sound nearly as exciting as going off and starting some great Christian business or working for a Christian business. There's a lot of room for despair and discouragement. There's been a lot of, a lot of law, you could say. But what I want to end with is an encouragement for each and every one of you, even if you are miserably failing, let's suppose, in all of those other areas. Because what a Christian ought to be doing with their heart right now, what they ought to be cultivating is contentment. Contentment with their finances, not with where they want them to be, but where they are right now. Contentment with their family, even that family member that really bothers you. And contentment with your employment, even if it's not your favorite. And you might think, well, that's not very encouraging, Pastor Cole, because where do I, that sounds like something I've got to do. That sounds like seven more levels of holiness before I reach real Christian contentment. But listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse 6. But the righteousness that comes from faith speaks like this. Do not say in your heart, who will go up to heaven, which is to bring Christ down, or who will go down into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. On the contrary, what does it say? The message is near to you, in your mouth, and in your heart. This message of faith that we proclaim is that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. Where is Christian contentedness? It's not far up in heaven. It's not way down in the abyss. It is as close to you as your words are to your mouth. Because why are you not content as a Christian? Well, it's because you're ungrateful. Well, why are you ungrateful? Well, it's because you don't give thanks for all of the good blessings that God has given you. Well, why don't you give thanks? Well, it's because you're not content. And why are you not content? It's because you're ungrateful. Well, why are you not grateful? Because you don't give thanks for all of the blessings that God has given you. So you're stuck in this cycle of sin, and the way to break that is to give thanks for all of the blessings that you actually don't have to go out and earn, but you already have. You already have them. 
God, who is infinite and eternal, the uncreated creator, took on, in addition, in the second person, the Son, in addition to his perfect divine nature, a perfect human nature. And he did not do that so he could come down to earth and reign as a tyrant. He did that so he could come down and serve and suffer and die so that you would be forgiven. So that as you live your entire life now, all of the good works you do, God is pleased by them. You please the one that you were created to please. And all of the sin that you do and think and say, God is excited, eager, and ready to forgive it. And all you do is confess it. And that is it. And someday, you are going to breathe your last and you are going to stand before a glorious, majestic God who in all of his splendor and awesomeness and mightiness and vastness that brings you to your knees loves you. Loves you. And you get to enjoy that with the people you are surrounded by for trillions and trillions and trillions of years. That is what Jesus has accomplished on your behalf. That is the blessing that you have now. And so if you are struggling to give thanks, Paul says in Ephesians 5.20 that you should be giving thanks always. Go especially in your scriptures to the letters that Paul writes. Because one of Paul's gifts is, is capturing all of the many spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. The Christian life is like someone who is at a table writing thank you cards to God. And every time he finishes one of them, five more Amazon packages roll up. And they start writing a thank you for them. And then 10 more show up. You live your whole life happily never able to thank God for all of the things that he blesses you with because he's constantly out blessing you. For every one thanks, 10 more blessings come. You can't even keep up with them all. That is your life. It is a life that is, there is no guilt in. You never feel guilty. When you do feel guilty, you either confess the sin or you tell the devil to take a hike because you shouldn't feel guilty because your sin is forgiven in Christ. You do not have to be ashamed because the God who has made heaven and earth loves you and you fear nothing because our God has ordained absolutely everything. So even the things that we think are bad, the things that hurt, we know that the God who loves us sent those for us so that we would be more and more conformed to the image of Jesus. That is your Christian life. And then... And then, after you close your Bible and you close Paul, you get to go out into the world and experience so many more blessings that are right there. They're right there, and you just don't see them. Every single day, between 10 o'clock and 11 o'clock, I go to my sink, which has an infinite source of clean water, and I take coffee from the other side of the world that I bought for like $5 and tastes really good, and I put it in a coffee machine. And out of that coffee machine comes hot, bitter, delicious coffee. I don't deserve one cup of that, and yet every day I have as much of that as I please. Sometimes too much. That, that's the kind of blessing that God gives you every single day. Husbands, every single night as you fall asleep, your last thought, your last words to God that you speak should be to thank him for the warm and beautiful woman that is in your bed that you absolutely do not deserve. Blessing after blessing after blessing that are all right there. 
And that is how when a Christian is able to be content because they're grateful, because they give thanks, they are able to endeavor any persecution. They are able to endeavor any financial entanglement. They are able to endeavor any workplace drama. They are able to endeavor any familial conflict because they are content, not in the blessings themselves, but in what the blessings point to, which is the great giver, the Father of lights, who has revealed himself perfectly in Jesus, who has revealed himself in Jesus for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray for your spirit because we are in great need. We are always in complete need of your grace. Apart from you, we grumble at the many blessings that you give us. We overlook them. We even intentionally ignore them because they're not the blessings that we want. God, please forgive us. Forgive us of our envy and our covetousness. Forgive us for not constantly praising and being amazed by the good people and pleasures that you bring into our life. We deserve hell. We deserve the tyranny of the devil. And everything that we deserve, you give us the opposite of. We not only have your unmerited grace, we have your demerited grace. We not only didn't deserve it, we did everything to deserve the contrary, and yet you have given us everything in Christ. This is overwhelming, and I pray that each and every one of us in our hearts would be stirred to go about the rest of our day praising you and giving thanks for all of the good things that you give us. In Jesus' name, amen.